0: What's God's response to those who desire to go deeper in their relationship with Him? With an answer that may surprise you, here's Pastor Ed Taylor.
1: I just need God. I don't want just His Word, and I don't want just to be in a church. I want my life to reflect a relationship with God. And so, in God's part, not only does He bring divine discipline and training, but he also says, I'm not going to reveal the entirety of your life to you. Instead, I want you to depend upon me daily, or in some cases, moment by moment.
0: This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. said, discipline is the bridge between what we are praying for and the answer to that prayer. We often misinterpret the difficulties we're facing, thinking God's not answering our prayer, but he is. He's a good father and is faithful to provide the loving discipline we need. Hello, and welcome to Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. As we spotlight 2 Kings chapter 8, we discover that God not only disciplines those he loves, But he does so so that we would live in a close, dependent relationship with him. To explain, here's Pastor Ed.
1: As we're walking alongside the life of the prophet Elisha, we're learning directly from his life. We are seeing God use him in dramatic, powerful ways, but we can't forget the backdrop. The nation of Israel is going through, you know, in the divided kingdom, Israel and Judah, going through a series of kings, most of them bad. And the time of the children of Israel, the, the people of God turning their back on God toward idolatry, to to worshiping false gods, to turning their back on the goodness and the graciousness of God. You know, anytime we're reading that, we're kind of thinking, well, I don't think I'd ever do that, but The longer you're in a community of believers, the more and more you see it. It's just one more temptation or one more chance and that choice to turn your back on. But imagine a nation, and it doesn't take much to imagine a nation that's turned their back on God. We live in a nation that's turned their back on God in so many ways. Sure, God has believers spread out in different facets of our culture, but as a nation, Unbelief has invaded the land, and it started with the leaders, the kings. And so what does God do when a people turn their back on him? And what does God do when a family turns their back on him? And what does God do when a person, a man, a woman, turns their back on God? He disciplines them. Let me read to you and jot it down in Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to read to you from the New Living Translation, beginning in verse 7. It says, As you endure this divine discipline, in the Old King or the New King James, it's chastening. So we don't usually use that word much anymore. It's a great way of saying saying it, divine discipline. Remember, as you're going through divine discipline, that God is treating you as his own children. Whoever heard of a child who was never disciplined? If God doesn't discipline you as he does all of his children, it means that you're illegitimate and you're not really his children after all. Since we respect our earthly fathers who disciplined us, should we not all the more cheerfully submit to the discipline of our heavenly Father and live forever? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best that they knew how. But God's discipline is always right and good for us because it means we will share in his holiness. Let me repeat that. God's discipline is always right and good for us because it means that we'll share in his holiness. Verse 11, no discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It is painful. Is there an amen to that? Right here, it's an exclamation point, but that really is an amen. No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening, but afterward, there'll be a quiet harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. Divine discipline equals the training of God And the end result is a life that's pleasing to God. And one of the tools of God's divine discipline in the nation of Israel that we see him use more than one time is famine. Now, don't think of famine just as a lack of food, although it is. For an ancient country to experience famine, especially in the area of Israel, being agrarian and living off the land, a famine would mean not only a lack of food, but it would be a severe blow to the economy. What you could equate it today as a stock market crash, and then in our day of age, you would say, the economy has tanked, and there's also no food. It would hit every facet of life, And they would then have a choice to look around or to look up. And how God often brings us to places where we either choose to look around or to look up. And in this case, by the time we come to chapter 8, the famine was about three and a half years and caused great distress. And yet in a moment, God intervenes and it ended. And now we learn, now coming to chapter 8, of another famine coming, verse 1, It says, Elisha spoke to the woman whose son he had restored to life, saying, Arise and go, you and your household, and sojourn wherever you can sojourn, for the Lord has called for a famine. Furthermore, it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the saying of the man of God, and she went with her own household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. It came to pass at the end of seven years that the woman returned from the land of the Philistines and she went to make an appeal to the king for her house and for her land. Then the king talked with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me, please, all the great things Elisha has done. And now it happened, as he was telling the king how he had restored the dead to life, that there was the woman whose son he had restored to life appealing to the king for her house and for her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, this is the woman, and this is her son, whom Elisha restored to life. And the king asked the woman and told him. So the king appointed a certain officer for her, saying, Restore all that was hers and all the proceeds of the field from the day that she left the land until now. Now, jot it down. We aren't going to go there. But back in chapter 4, beginning in around verse 8, Elisha met this woman and restored life to her son. Now this is the same woman coming now a few chapters later and she's being divinely warned by Elisha of another famine that's going to hit the land. And he gives her advice on how to handle it. And the advice that he gives her is practical. Not necessarily spiritual in the sense of, of, I mean everything that we do for God is spiritual, but the advice that he gives is practical. And that there's a famine coming. And what he tells her is, he doesn't offer up a miracle to provide food for her. Doesn't tell her to go gather all the jars and get the wine and make bread. He doesn't give all of these spiritual miraculous things. He gives her instruction. And what does he say? You should leave the land and go find a place where there's food. That's what he tells her. Go sojourn where you can sojourn where there's food because there's a famine coming here. Find a solution. Go live somewhere else. And we're reminded that in serving God, we can't always predict how God is going to work. Even as we heard during our time of worship, we, we, we aren't able to limit God. Even though we do place these artificial limits on Him, He's not limited by our limitations. And we can't predict how He's going to work. Or we might say today that you can't put God in a box or box Him in so that this is the only way that He can work and this is the only thing that He can do and there's a famine in the land, so God, you must provide a miracle. Food needs to show up in my cupboard. Instead, the advice was you need to go live somewhere else and go there for a time. And remember the last time we were together, we learned the difference between directive prayers and prayers of submission. Directive prayers come when we've already made up our mind how we want God to work. And so we've already figured out the solution. We've already figured out how it's going to be. I'm going to apply for this job. and Then we're going to move here. and We're going to do this. And this is how it's going. So God just bless my plans. And we start to direct God on how he's supposed to work and how he's going to work it out. And then when he doesn't act and answer that way, almost immediately we turn on God and blame Him for not answering the way we told Him to and not doing things the way we told Him to instead of, instead of laying the situation before God and trusting Him with the outcome. Just saying, God, this is the problem. You know it. What is it that you want to do? Instead of directing God in our prayers, it's much better to submit to God in our prayer because directing God in our prayer is not going to work. It isn't going to... Get you and me to the place where we really want to go, and that is to accomplish the will of God. It's a frustrating thing to try to figure God out. I mean, if you think about it, if I passed out little pieces of paper before service today, and I said, okay, guys, here's the question For seven years, there's going to be a famine in the land. What is God's solution? And I don't just mean for Elisha, let's say it's for us. God gave us a revelation that there's going to be seven years of difficulty in our country, and I say, so what's God going to do? I would imagine that what was written on those pieces of paper would vary greatly because some of them would be what you want to happen. Some of them would be out of prayer. Some would be, I have no idea what God's, and there would, some would overlap, but many of them, there would be so varied responses. And the good thing is, is that we can take all of those varied responses and lay them before God and say, God, I trust you how you're gonna work it out. I trust you in what you want to do. Why doesn't God just spell out things for us? Why doesn't He just lay out our lives? Because there's a lot of us that would really love to know what the next five years will bring. Some of you listening you go, five years? I'd really like to know what the next five days will bring the next five hours would bring, because I've got this situation here, and I've got this difficulty over there, and I've got this long-term goal and range, and I'd really like to know. And we wonder sometimes, why wouldn't God just spell it out for us? He loves us. He cares for us. I think even as parents, there are times where we would love to spell it out for our kids so they'd have a little bit of comfort of what's going to be in the future and what would be up ahead. But I believe God in his sovereignty, and his desire to lead us by faith, doesn't spell things out to us because he wants us to learn to live a life of dependence. What kind of dependence would come if God told us what's gonna happen in the next five years? We just anticipate it, we just expect it. And maybe God say, well, you know, nothing significant is gonna happen in the year 2019. So what would we do? Write out 2019. And we'd be anticipating, what, 2020. I mean, it would even be great to know that God's saying, really, God, you're giving me a five-year plan, so there's going to be five years. And so what would you do? You'd plan things out for five years. Instead of saying, God, what is it today? And learning to depend upon Him when I don't see clearly, when I'm not sure, when I don't understand what the future might hold. God enjoys relationship with His people, with His kids, not a religious activity. So many would step out in a midweek Bible study because you're taking the next step away from just being church attenders, but you are coming to that place of sensing a hunger in your life for more. What does the Bible say? And so you're saying, I'll give up whatever's on television tonight. I'll give up whatever sleep I would anticipate. I'll give up whatever it is that you would sacrifice to say on Wednesday night. Because I'm sure if you talk to some of your friends, you go, what are you doing on Wednesday night? I'm going to church. You're doing what? What? I mean, because we're heading out over here and we're playing softball over there and we've got this going. And there's overtime, man. There's another shift that you can... You say, no, no, I want to grow. I'm not just wanting to be a church attender. As good as that might be, I mean, it's better to attend church and to be in a Bible study and to be in the atmosphere of worship than so many other places. But many of you, you have found out by now that is not the essence of your relationship with God any more than just showing up at home An hour a week would really make that house a home in your life. Nobody really does that. In a family, we spend time with one another. We grow with one another. We we go through difficulties together. We work out issues together. And, And as we step out on a Wednesday night, it's just so glorious. Or listening to a radio station, you know, of all the options that you could listen to, you go, I think I need to hear the word of God. I don't need to hear music today as good as it is. I definitely never need to hear country music, so that's not even an option. I just need the Word of God. You know, even if the Word of God is taught to me in a country twang, it won't come from me, but I'm sure somebody can. You know, Bill Gim's on from Texas at night, so if you stay up late enough, you'll get a Texas twang for Pastor Bill. But I just need God. I don't want just His Word, and I don't want just to be in a church I want my life to reflect a relationship with God. And so in God's part, not only does he bring divine discipline and training, but he also says, I'm not going to reveal the entirety of your life to you. Instead, I want you to depend upon me daily or in some cases, moment by moment. As I prayed earlier, some of you have these questions on your heart and your mind and you keep asking them. And the answer hasn't come for five days, five weeks, five months, five years. And you keep asking them, but here's the danger. Here's the danger. When the answer comes, will you still ask? When the answer comes, when God finally settles and reveals to you what the issue is here, and you've been desperate, and you're knocking like the persistent widow, and you're not going to leave until you get an answer. So you're pressing in, and you're digging deep. And then when God finally gives you the answer, is that it? Or will it take another crisis, another difficulty? Or are you learning that it's good to come to Him with all things? That we're to pray, be anxious for nothing, but in all things, by prayer and supplication, we make our requests be made known to God. God's teaching us these things. And over time, we're learning them. Jot it down in Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 3. Someone once referred to this as God's calling card. Jeremiah three three three. Call to me, God says, and I'll answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. Call unto me, God says, and I'll answer you. And so what does Elisha tell her? He says, go find a place to live until the famine is over. And she comes back after the famine, and she requests that her land be restored to her. And so she comes to the king and has an audience with the king. She wants her land. And notice Gehazi shows up. This is Elisha's servant. This is the one that he prayed for, that his eyes would be opened, that he'd see the spiritual realm. And here he is in proximity with the king, and and he's there to give a good word, and he reminds the king about the miracle of God done in her life with her son, and it moved the king to give her the request, give her her land back. And he arranges it by the time we get to verse 6. And you know, The king didn't have to do this. He didn't have to. He was the sovereign king. He could make whatever decision he wanted to make. And it it reminded me at times in our lives that we have, sometimes we have leaders and bosses and authorities over us that we don't really like, and we don't really agree much with. And I'm not asking for an amen, I don't want you to get in trouble. But we've all worked with people. We've all had people in our life, maybe even within ministry, where God has used a leader that that we may not agreed with or we didn't like, but God's using that leader to hone us and to to cause us to deeper dependence upon him. And we wonder, we wonder if we'll ever have favor with them, if we'll ever get a good word or an encouragement from them. Let this little section of scripture encourage you. The king didn't have to do this, but God gave her favor. He didn't have to do this at all. But God gave her favor. Which reminded me of this proverb. I want you to see this. So turn over to Proverbs 21. Especially as this might resonate with your heart. You go, yeah, I'm working for a guy right now. Or I'm working for a gal right now. and I just never seem to have any favor with them. Turn over to Proverbs 21.1. Because this is just one of those verses you want to hold on to. One of those connecting points. And we see it perfectly lived out with this woman in this section of 2 Kings 8. It says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and like rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. In the New Living Translation, it says, The king's heart's like a stream of water directed by the Lord, and he turns it wherever he pleases. And so as you're praying for your boss, you're praying for that authority, that person in authority over you, praying for the... Authorities in life, you know, there's just ever-increasing pressure in our culture to turn on authority. It's much better just to know that their hearts are in the hands of the Lord and pray for them. And as you pray for them, God's going to work in you. Now, come back with me to 2 Kings chapter 8 verse 7. Elisha heads to Damascus. Just living his life in the Lord. Notice verse 7. Then Elisha went to Damascus, and Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. And it was told him, saying, the man of God has come here. Remember, Elisha was known as what? A man of God. He is well known. Even to the king in Syria. He's the man of God. Now, they're familiar with him they're familiar with him because he's the guy, remember, that's known not only as the man of God, but he's the guy that is known as the person that knows even the things they whisper in their bedrooms on behalf of God. He's the one, Elisha, this man of God, that God used to stop the ambushes to protect the nation. So he's known all right. And I wonder if you're known I wonder if you're known as a man of God, as a woman of God. I wonder if that's the top designation that somebody has when they think of you. That you're the man of God. You're the one that hears from God. You're the one that talks about God. Now, you could be known as a man of God in not a very kind way. I remember when I first got saved, they, they were calling me Bible boy. That, that was their title for me because now all of a sudden I had completely transformed overnight. I remember this, this one time, I won't forget, I was walking to my car after a shift and one of the guys I work with, he came over and knocked my Bible out of my hand. He said, what are you doing, Bible boy? And I'm like, oh boy. Bible boy. I mean, praise God for the power of the Holy Spirit because that dude really ticked me off. And I was really close to the old Ed back then. Like I was much closer there than I am today. Although haven't you found that in an instant you can be the old you, the flesh. So quick, just so quick. And you're like, what has happened to me? Well, the Lord's reminding you that daily sufficient grace is what we need. His grace is sufficient. Not the years that we've been walking with the Lord. Well, you know what? I've been walking with Jesus for 30 years, and in one second, the old you can come back. And I wonder if you know and if you're known as a man of God and as a woman of God, whether positive or negative. Notice verse 8. The king said to Haziel, Take a present in your hand and go meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord by him, saying, Shall I recover from this disease? So Haziel, verse 9, went to meet him and took a present with him of every good thing of Damascus, 40 camel loads, and he came and stood before him and said, Your son Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, Shall I recover from this disease? And Elisha said to him, Go, say to him, You shall certainly recover. However, the Lord has shown me that he will really die. Woo-hoo. Then he set his countenance in a stare until he was ashamed, and the man of God wept. And Hazael said, Why is my Lord weeping? And he answered, Because I know the evil that you will do to the children of Israel.
0: Not the answer he no doubt expected, but there are times when we'll have to deliver a difficult message. More on that next time when Pastor Ed Taylor returns to 2 Kings 8 here on Abounding Grace. To hear today's message again, go to calvaryaurora.org. Well, Pastor Ed, it seems like everyone these days has a smartphone or a tablet, and if it's anything like mine, it's full of apps. Would you take just a few moments to tell them about a couple of apps that we have to offer that can help them in their walk with the Lord?
1: You know, Larry, we want to leverage every piece of technology possible to get the gospel out, and we have developed these apps to make everything that we do here at Calvary easily accessible. If you go to your app store or Google Play, type in Calvary Church Ed Taylor, or Calvary and Aurora, A-U-R-O-R-A. Both of our free apps will pop up. One is for our church, and one is for our radio station. And all the information that we have available is right at your fingertips, on your tablet, on your phone. So go get them. They're free. We do a lot of updates, so make sure you turn your notifications on so we can communicate with you, pray with you, pray for you, and encourage you in God's Word. Again, you can find these apps by searching for
0: Calvary Aurora. At Abounding Grace, we're committed to delivering God's Word to stations like this every day. But we can't do it alone. We're very thankful for the listeners that come alongside us with financial and or prayerful support. And if you'd like to help us reach people with the love and truth of Christ, please visit calvaryaurora.org or call 877-30-GRACE. And as you give $25 or more today, we'll say thanks by sending you Married and How to Stay That Way by Steve Carr. Whether you're on the brink of divorce, not happy with the way things are going in your marriage, or looking for some tools to help take your relationship to the next level, this book is a must-read. It's written in a counseling style with practical encouragement. And there are group discussion questions at the end of each chapter, so this would work well in a small group Bible study. Call 877-30-GRACE or turn to calvaryaurora.org on the web to make a secure donation. We'll get right back into 2 Kings tomorrow on Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. We'll see you then. This is amazing
1: grace.
0: Bounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor is brought to you by Calvary Church Colorado